Hello, and welcome to A History of Alexander the Great. Episode 2 The Young Alexander. In our last episode, we introduced the three main cultures in our tale the Greeks, the Persians, and the Macedonians. We looked at their respective histories and at our key sources for the period Arian and Plutarch. I also gave a brief outline of Philip II's reign as King of Macedon. This week, we'll cover these years again, but from the view of Philip's son, Alexander. We'll bring the narrative up to the assassination of Philip, and then bring in some key characters in our story. So, let's go! Alexander's father was Philip II of Macedon, and his mother was Olympias, an Apirian princess. Olympias' uncle, Arimbas, king of Epirus, made an alliance with Philip in 358 BC, and a marriage between Philip and Olympias was part of the deal. Philip was 24 and Olympias was 17. In a tale that will be full of omens, we have our first one here. On the night before the consummation of the marriage, Olympias dreamed that a lightning bolt struck her womb, and a sheet of flames broke out which spread far and wide before the flames died away. After a while, Philip had a dream that he was sealing up his wife's womb, and the seal was engraved with a lion. His soothsayers all said that he should keep a closer eye on Olympias. Well, all but one. Aristander said that this meant Olympias was pregnant and that her son would be bold and lion-like. There were also rumours that Philip had seen Olympias in bed with a snake, which meant Alexander's father would be Zeus, and that Philip's passion had then cooled for her. The story of the snake probably originates with that Olympias was involved with the cult of Dionysus, the god of wine, ritual madness, and ecstasy. This involved, well, drunken ritual madness and snakes. Philip's volatility and Olympias's jealousy led to a strain on the marriage, rather than Olympias sleeping with Zeus. As we said last time, Alexander was born in 356 BC. He was brought up by his nurse in his early years, and later on by the relative of his mother, Leonidas, and by Lysimachus. From early on, Alexander was seen to be quite self-restrained, and was always chasing fame. There is a wonderful quote of Alexander's, said when with his friends, after news of a victory of Philip's has come, which was, Boys, my father will forestall me in everything. There will be nothing great or spectacular for you and me to show the world. At some point, we're not exactly sure when, a horse dealer tried selling Philip a horse, Bucephalus. The king and his friends saw the horse, and saw that it was wild, and wouldn't let anyone ride him. Philip became angry at the horse dealer for trying to sell him such an untamed animal. Alexander, watching, soon became angry at them for giving up such a brilliant animal, because they didn't know how to ride him. After realising Alexander was upset, Philip asked him if he thought he could do better than his elders. Alexander responded, At least I could manage this one better. Philip then asked what penalty he would pay if he couldn't. Alexander retorted, The price of one horse. After the whole company burst out laughing, Philip let the boy have a go. Alexander walked by the horse for a while, calming him after realising that the horse was afraid of its shadow. After a while, Alexander was able to mount the horse, 
constantly reassuring it, until he was able to break out into a full gallop, completely in control. The crowd burst into applause. Philip actually wept with joy, saying, O my son, seek out a kingdom worthy of thyself, for Macedonia is too little for thee. When Alexander was aged thirteen, Philip decided to get him a tutor. The eventual choice would be Aristotle. Aristotle would teach at the Royal Academy of Macedon, teaching Alexander and a few others, such as future kings Ptolemy and Cassander. Aristotle taught the boys the principles of ethics and politics, as well as medicine, literature, and other aspects of philosophy. When Aristotle released treaties on some of these philosophical points, Alexander complained to Aristotle for making well-known points that had been told to Alexander personally. Aristotle replied that his treaties were useless for teaching or learning the subject from the beginning, and that it served more as a guidebook for those who were already familiar with the topic. Aristotle gave Alexander a love of books. His favourite, of course, was the Iliad. Alexander saw the Iliad as a handbook of the art of war, and took a copy of it on campaign with him. Alexander's favourite character would be Achilles, who he was supposedly descended from on his mother's side. Although he would become estranged with Aristotle, at least in these early years, he was a close friend. Alexander remarked that although Philip had given him the gift of life, Aristotle taught him how to live well. As Alexander grew older, he began to have a role in government. He had previously met with ambassadors from Persia, who were impressed with Philip, but felt that Philip was nothing compared to his son. When Alexander was sixteen, Philip went on campaign against Byzantium, and he left Alexander in control of Macedonia as regent. While he was regent, a Thracian tribe, called the Medi, broke out in revolt. Alexander was able to crush them, he captured their city, threw out the Medeans, repopulated it with Greeks, and named it Alexandropolis. Just a bit egocentric. But don't worry, we have many more examples of Alexander's huge ego ahead of us. Philip then returned to Maston, and sent Alexander into southern Thrace to crush some more revolts. The Amphrictionic League, allies of Philip, complained that the citizens of the city of Amphysia had been cultivating land which was sacred to Apollo. They requested help from Philip, and he accepted and invaded Greece. This became the Fourth Sacred War. One of the many fights between the Greeks that led to the rise of Macedon, as I said last time. Philip marched into central Greece at the lead of 30,000 infantry and 2,000 cavalry, and tried convincing Thebes to join him. Meanwhile, Athens tried convincing Thebes to join them in facing the Macedonians. Thebes decided to join the Athenians, giving them a combined force of 35,000 troops, including the 300 members of the Theban sacred band, Thebes's elite troops. The two forces met in 338 BC at Chironia. The Greeks deployed between the Kethysos Mountains and Mount Actian. The Thebans defended the Greek right, and the Athenians defended the Greek left. The Macedonians lined up against them, with Philip on the Macedonian right, and Alexander, age 18 now, controlling the Macedonian left, 
We don't really know too well what happened, but this is what historians think happened. The two lines met and fought a meat grinder battle for a while, neither side able to gain the upper hand. This advantaged Philip, as his troops were more experienced, and could handle fatigue better. After letting the inexperienced Athenians become weakened, Philip then pulled his troops back, rotating them around the centre, just like a clock hand. This stretched the Greek line. When Philip turned and slammed into the exhausted Greeks, the Greeks were routed. Alexander was then able to break through the Greek left, the first person to break through the Theban sacred band. There is another version, though, which has Philip pulling back, but going straight back rather than rotating. This created a gap as the Athenians pursued Philip. Alexander then entered the gap and swung round the back of Thebans, routing them. Meanwhile, Philip turned around and crushed the Athenians. I don't know which version happened, but either way, Philip was now the most powerful force in Greece. Philip surprised the Greeks by not besieging Athens and Corinth. Philip instead pursued an alliance. He and Alexander toured Greece, but when Sparta refused to talk with Philip, he attacked the local region. Philip then returned to Corinth and tried to create an anti-Persian confederacy, similar to what had been created in the Persian invasion, as you will recall from last time. This has been dubbed the League of Corinth. All city-states, apart from Sparta, joined, and appointed Philip Hegemon, or leader, of the League. Philip was told by the League that it would be his job to lead the campaign against Persia, to avenge the destruction of Athens. See, I told you to remember that. Things were looking promising for Philip and Alexander, but privately... All was not well in the royal family. In Macedonia, the king was allowed to have multiple wives. Olympias was one of many wives that Philip had. We already know that Olympias's and Philip's marriage was quite strained, and Olympias used this to turn Alexander against his father. This came to a head when Philip married a Macedonian woman called Cleopatra. Olympias was an Iperian, was seen as a semi-barbarian. If Philip and Cleopatra had a son, he could be seen as the heir apparent, rather than Alexander. At the wedding feast, Cleopatra's uncle, Italus, who was drunk, drinking bouts being a part of Macedonian culture, called the Macedonians to pray that now there may be a legitimate heir. Alexander was furious, screaming, Villain? Do you take me for a bastard, then? And then threw a drinking cup at his head. Philip jumped up, drew his sword against Alexander, but he was so drunk that he tripped and fell over, saving Alexander's life. Alexander then jeered. Here is the man who is making ready to cross from Europe to Asia, and who cannot even cross from one table to the other without losing his balance? Alexander then stormed out, taking Olympias to Epirus, while he went to Illyria. About six months after this happened, a family friend, Demaritus, the Corinthian, visited Philip. There was of course the pomp and circumstance that surrounds royal courts, but once this had all been done with, they got down to business. 
Philip asked whether the Greek cities were at harmony with each other. But Demaratus replied, It is all very well for you to show so much concern for the affairs of Greece, Philip. How about the disharmony you have brought about in your own household? This knocked Philip to his senses. He sent for Alexander, and with help from Demaratus, Alexander was persuaded to come home. The royal family was reconciled, at least publicly. Privately, it's quite unlikely. Next year, Pixadarus, the ruler of Caria in western Turkey, proposed a marriage between his eldest daughter and Arehades, who was described as Plutarch as being backward as a result of some disease. But we would say he was mentally challenged. He would become Alexander's successor, in fact. But that is a story for much later. Anyway, when Olympias heard of this, she sent a distorted version of the story to Alexander, saying that this was part of a scheme of Philip's to make Arehadus his heir. It shows how unstable the royal family was, that Alexander would so easily believe this. Alexander then sent a message to Pixadarus, that why bother with Arehadus when his daughter could marry Alexander? Pixadarus was delighted, but Philip wasn't. Philip was shocked with the idea of Alexander marrying a mere carrion, and cancelled the whole arrangement. In his rage, he ordered that the messenger Alexander had used to contact Pixadorus be killed, and banished several of Alexander's friends, including Ptolemy, the future king of Egypt's Ptolemy, who some sources say is an illegitimate son of Philip, and Nearchus, who we will have cause to deal with towards the end of our story. Later in the year, 336 BC, yet another marriage took place, this one between Alexander I of Epirus, brother of Olympias, and Cleopatra, daughter of Philip and Olympias, which was, yeah, his niece. Their marriage was for Philip to make an alliance with Alexander of Epirus, because Olympias had been trying to convince her brother to go to war with Philip, while she was in exile after Philip married Cleopatra. But not the Cleopatra who is getting married now, the Cleopatra who was the pure Macedonian Cleopatra, and son of Atalus, who insulted Alexander at the wedding. That Alexander is Alexander the Great, not Alexander of Epirus. Wow, that was confusing. And I'm afraid it doesn't get better as time goes on. There are a lot of Ptolemies, Cleopatras, Alexanders, Seleucuses, and many, many others. I'll do my best to make it clear which Cleopatra we're talking about as time goes on. Anyway, back to this wedding between Alexander I of Epirus and Cleopatra, daughter of Philip and Olympias. So it was a wedding, a happy time for everyone, when along comes poor Sanius of Alstis, one of Philip's bodyguards, who goes ahead and stabs Philip to death. This begs the question, why? There are four schools of thought on the subject. I'm not going to act like I know which one, because I really don't have a clue. For your enjoyment, here they are. Version 1 is that poor Sanius killed Philip on his own initiative. The first bit of this is accepted fact. That poor Sanius had become Philip's lover, but Philip got bored and got a new lover, 
also called, wait for it, Pausanias. For clarity, we'll call the Pausanias who killed Philip, Pausanias of Alstis, and we'll call this new Pausanias, Pausanias the Lover. Pausanias of Alstis was jealous of Pausanias the Lover, and began insulting him, calling him promiscuous, and all that. And then Pausanias the Lover was so upset by all this that he decided to kill himself. Pausanias the Lover told Atalus, the father of Cleopatra, the one that married Philip, that he was planning to do this, and at a battle, Pausanias the Lover jumped in front of Philip when Philip's life was in danger, receiving fatal wounds and dying. After Atalus heard of what happened to Pausanias the Lover, he invited Pausanias of Orstis around for dinner, got him drunk, and then let him be raped by his mule drivers. Pausanias of Orstis then complained to Philip, but Philip did nothing because Atalus was to become his new father-in-law. Here the sources differ. Diodorus reports that Pausanias of Orstis was so infuriated that he used the opportunity of the wedding between Alexander of Epirus and Cleopatra to kill Philip. This explanation of the murder as the annoyed underling is quite a common story in the ancient world. Students of Roman history will find the story similar to the assassination of Victorianus of the Gallic Empire in 270 AD and of Carinus in 285 AD. Added to the unlikeliness of this version is that the insults happened eight years before Pausanias actually killed Philip. The second version of the story is that it was Olympius who convinced Pausanias to murder Philip. Olympius and Philip hadn't been close for years, and she felt severely threatened by his marriage to Cleopatra in particular. That she wanted her brother to attack Philip meant that she wanted him dead, and after her brother abandoned her cause to make an alliance with Philip, she would have to do the deed herself. She merely had to convince Pausanias to kill Philip, which he was willing to do after Philip refused to punish Talus. After Philip's death, some sources say that she had his widow, Cleopatra, and Cleopatra's infant son roasted over a brazier. So the image that is painted for us by the sources show Olympias as quite a horrible person, but that may not be fair. She certainly wanted what was best for Alexander, and most likely for herself, and that means that she will not have been popular with the ancient historians at the time, who feared powerful women. Important women of the ancient world are usually portrayed in two categories, depending on how much power the woman had, either as a noble saint on earth, or as an evil stepmother. As I'm sure you've worked out, Olympias is portrayed as an evil stepmother. Therefore, we perhaps need to take what we're told about Olympias with a pinch of salt, Version number three is that it was Alexander who convinced Pausanias to murder Philip. The argument for this case is that Alexander was annoyed at Philip for winning victories that should have been his, and that he was feeling threatened that Philip would replace him with another heir if given the time. There is a report that when Pausanias met with Alexander and spoke to him of his injustice, Alexander quoted a verse from Euripides' Medea, 
That's the one with Jason and the Golden Fleece, which was the father, bride, and bridegroom all at once, meaning that he should kill Atalus, Cleopatra, and Philip. After Philip's death, Alexander would execute Atalus, and we've already seen Cleopatra killed, so all three would be dead. After poor Sanius killed Philip, Alexander's friends chased him down and killed him. Could this be because he wanted him dead before he was able to talk? The last version of the murder is that the Persians used poor Sanius to kill Philip. Philip was about to lead an invasion of Persia, so you can understand why the Persians wanted him dead. If Philip was to die, then the twenty-year-old Alexander would take the throne, and the Persians would have preferred this new inexperienced king than an experienced and very good general. This was at least the official version. In a letter to Darius, Alexander mentions how Darius boasted of killing Philip. So, like I say, I don't know which one it is. If I had to choose, I would guess that the Persians ordered it. Either way, Philip was dead, and Alexander was king. Now, we'll quickly introduce two key characters, Hephaestion and Parmenio. We know little about Hephaestion's early years, but he was probably a similar age to Alexander, was a page at the Macedonian court, and was probably a student to Aristotle, along with Alexander. He probably went on campaign with Philip during the last years of his rule, and that's about it. Hephaestion is important in our story because he was Alexander's best friend, and possibly his male lover. That is all we have on him for the moment, and now we'll look at Parmenio. Parmenio, also called Parmenian, was born about 400 BC, making him 64 at the time of Philip's death. We know almost nothing of his early years, but he was a general under Philip, and rose to be his chief military lieutenant. He had a son, Philotas, who was one of Alexander's companions. And that is all we have to say on him. But they will both be important in Alexander's story, so the sooner we know who they are, the better. That is all we have for this episode. Next time, we'll take a look at Alexander's personality once he came to the throne, as he has only really been supporting character so far. We'll then carry on the narrative looking at Alexander's early years in power. Remember, you can visit us online at thehistoryofpodcast.blogspot.com or visit the History of Podcast Facebook page or follow us on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash thehistoryofpod. Feel free to ask a question or make a suggestion. Thanks to Peter John Ross for the music and thanks to you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the programme.